Great. Oh, really lovely to see uh, so many of you here uh, this morning. I wasn't exactly sure how many people would be showing up on a very grey and dark Saturday morning, but here you are. Isn't that great? Have a look around. You're going to be chatting to each other in the in the coffee time. Let me encourage you, actually, while I think of it, I think it's really important to kind of capitalise on times like this, especially to get to know people that you don't know. So I would encourage you, in the coffee time, you can do this. You find someone that you don't know, and you go up to them, and you, you, you introduce yourself. And fortunately, you have your name badge, and you say, Hi, my name is Stephen. And you wouldn't say, What's your name? Because you can read it. But then you can have this conversation. It's just amazing. I would encourage you to do that in the coffee time. So for those that don't know me very well, and I don't know several of you, so my name is Stephen. I'm married to Acklam. I have three teenage children. Uh, the oldest is 19, the youngest is 15. I currently work in the civil service, and my time is split between working in Newcastle a couple of days a week and then at home, so that's nice. Before working in the civil service, uh, which is, has a great pension, I would recommend that, but before working in the civil service, I worked for King's Church Durham, which didn't have a great pension as the training coordinator there. And before that, I was working as an elder missionary in a New Frontiers church in Turkey, in Izmir. Yes, that's right. Praise the Lord. If you're really interested about that, then grab me in the break. And if you're really, really interested, then come with me to Turkey in March. But that's something else. Random fact. Huh? Random fact. Uh, when I was 18, for my 18th birthday, I had a present which I did ask for. It was jumping out of an aeroplane at 3,000 feet on a fixed-line parachute. Recommendable. If you haven't done it, you really should. No. <laughs> Someone said, no, I heard that. So the series that we're doing today, the, series, the title of the series is really drawn from a prophetic word given to the congregation, but it's deeper. And the whole premise behind this is not really that we're finding new things to believe in. It's the things that we believe in already, we, the things that we value, we want to hold those more tightly and go deeper into them. That's kind of where we're coming from. Does that make sense? So it's, these aren't new values that we're reiterating. These are old values that we treasure and we are going deeper into these old values. And the first value that we really want to kind of tackle is this one, the question of the authority of Scripture in a changing culture. And by way of introduction, I don't know if you can see this very clearly, uh, but um, I thought I'd give you this little cartoon to start off with. So uh, it's Lego. Let me read it for Richard. Wait a minute. Is that Jesus? Yeah, he comes in every Thursday and orders a bowl of soup. Why is Jesus frequenting a Japanese restaurant? Because he loves me so. <laughs> okay, you got it eventually. You got it eventually, but not immediately. So he loves miso. Miso to explain. Yes, that's right. But miso is a Japanese, uh, Japanese dish. Now that's the kind of a cultural illustration. Because one of the questions that we're looking at here is this. What is culture? What is culture? How would we define it? And I found this nice little culture from Richard Niebuhr. He wrote a book in 1951, Christ in Culture, which says this. Culture is artificial secondary environment which man superimposes on the natural. It comprises language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes and values. So these are placed upon something else, upon something artificial. So by way of illustration, I suppose here we have a physical building, we have physical chairs, and you are physical people. And yet you'll behave differently if we took all of you out and we put, um, let's use Japan as an example, if we use the numbers here, we're all Japanese, everyone would behave in a very different way in a very different way. If it was Turkey, they would behave in a very different way. But the physicality would be the same. Does that make some sense? So this is something extra opposed upon the physicality. When we think about the physicality that we all inhabit, we live in this world. The world physically is as it is. But the thing about culture is that we don't really realize that it's there. 
It is the air that we breathe. It's the air that we breathe. Or, by way of another illustration, oh, sorry, going the wrong way, it is this. Morning, boys. How's the water? What the heck is water? <laughs> okay, pausing. Everyone's getting that? Okay, eventually. <laughs> thank you. Bethany, thank you, Alan, for the late laugh. <laughs> so the fish swimming in the water are oblivious to the fact that they are in water. Similarly, we are oblivious to the fact that we are breathing in, breathing it. We're breathing in oxygen. Yeah, we're breathing in this air. We are surrounded by this air. We don't notice it, but it's there. And in the absence of it, that's when you really do notice it, isn't it? You know, if you haven't got your air, you'll be collapsing. But we just do not see that it's there. And more than that, we have a presumption that our air, our water, our culture is correct, is right. And everyone else's is terribly wrong and misguided. How sad for them. Now, I would like, by way of illustration, and this is an active audience participation thing. Uh, get ready. People that are a bit shy about this, I'm sorry, but you have to go through it. Uh, see it as... Uh, I don't know, a trial by pain. Uh, get ready. This is not a difficult one. Firstly, I want you to consider and answer mentally yourself this question. How do you cook rice? Hold that in your head. No speaking, please. How do you cook rice? When you have the answer in your head, please turn to someone next to you, and I want you to compare how they cook rice. Please. <laughs> Okay, everyone. Come back to me. Come back to me. Now, from that little experiment, we have learned a few things. Firstly, we have learned that some of us cannot cook at all. Uh, Not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, And secondly, we probably have also learned that there are different ways to cook rice. There are different ways to cook rice. And we might want to say some of them are more correct than others. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, But maybe we don't want to say that. Maybe rice isn't, isn't really a, a, an ethical issue, is it? Uh, but some elements are. Perhaps for some of us amongst us, it is, actually. We have um, there's a guy staying with us at the moment called Justin, and he is from brought up in Japan. And for him, rice is an ethical issue. <laughs> but an illustration of how cultural perceptions are different is, is this one. More recently, you might have noticed, and Sam is amongst us. Sam was in Qatar. Why was Sam in Qatar? Because there was something called the World Cup that was held in Qatar. You might have heard of that. Now, what I noticed preceding the World Cup in the run-up to it was something of surprise in the Western media. Now, there shouldn't have been surprise because uh, Qatar was arranged, I think, is it eight years earlier? This is where the World Cup is going to be. When Qatar was decided, this is where the World Cup is going to be, what kind of country was Qatar? It was an Islamic culture. An Islamic, uh, probably nearly 100% Islamic culture. An Islamic culture that does not sell alcohol, that, that does not approve of homosexuality. Time ticks on. Just before the World Cup, suddenly the Western media is, oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness, Qatar doesn't sell alcohol and doesn't approve of homosexuality. What a shock. What a shock. <laughs> Didn't you see that one coming like years earlier? But what was interesting for me was this perception then that rolls out, which was that this Western perception from the media is correct. And the, and the, the culture of Qatar that hasn't changed, as far as I understand it, from when they decided they would have the World Cup to when it actually happened. The culture hasn't changed, and this culture is wrong. 
And now the worst, if you were to say, oh, well, uh, colonialism, what do you think about that? Oh, terribly wrong. Well, what's this? Isn't this a bit like a cultural colonialism where the West is saying, we have the right, the correct culture. We cook rice in the right way. And you, Qatar, you are wrong. You must conform to our culture. Just put it out there. I thought it was interesting. I'm not making any comment on alcohol or homosexuality, but my observation is one culture pushed itself upon another. And the thing is that when we are in a culture, that happens to us all the time, unconsciously. The, the prevailing culture that we're in pushes itself upon us. And it's difficult for us, being in the water, breathing the air, to distinguish, to find out what is different until someone comes in from somewhere else. By way of illustration, I remember attending a small church in London. It was in, in East Greenwich. And when we were there, we were joined by a Nigerian family. And the Nigerian family comes onto the leadership team. And I very clearly remember the guy, his name was Gilbert. And very dynamic couple. And at Christmas, there was a problem. At Christmas, there was a problem because the, the pastor of, of the church decorated the church one day and lights and decorations and at the front, a Christmas tree. And for Gilbert, that was a problem. Why was that? Why was that? Gilbert, coming from Nigeria, he was basically, he confronted us and he said, you, let me get this right, you are like Rachel. You have taken your household gods with you on the journey. Where do you think this tree has come from? <laughs> this is a pagan symbol, and you have brought it from your culture, and you are putting it in the church. What are you doing? Now, for me, as an Englishman who is brought up with Christmases upon Christmases and trees upon trees, I breathe it in. It's my air. I swim in that water. For Gilbert, who comes in from Nigeria, he sees with different eyes. And he sees something that we are just accepting. And he points it out and he says, actually, that's probably not a good thing for you to do. Make sense? Uh, I think the interesting thing is, uh, in well, let me come to this quote in a second. Hang on. I think this is, apart from anything else, a good reason why God still calls people into cross-cultural mission. Because when you go from one culture to another, you see things very differently. You can see things sharply. And that sharpness of perception is a gift to the church. And so here is my quote from Kenneth Bailey, wrote this book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He says this, In every culture, the message of the gospel is in constant danger of being compromised by the value system that supports that culture and its goals. The stranger to that culture can instinctively identify those points of surrender and call the community back to a purer and more authentic faith. But such infusions of new life are usually resented and resisted. So it wasn't like a, when Gilbert says to us, hey, this tree, by the way, is an idol that you've brought along, just like Sarah. And we're like, oh, yeah, great. That's fantastic. Oh, we couldn't see what was the response? No, you're wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. This is England. We have our trees from our pagan past. No, we didn't say that. But you kind of see what I'm saying? There is a point of resistance when these things happen. So where do we find ourselves? Well, a couple of points. First one is this. Western society is quick, changing quickly away from its once held Christian roots. We are drifting. We are drifting. I say we. Culture is changing. It's changing. It's visibly changing now, but I want to suggest to you that it probably shifted a lot earlier than that. So what we are now seeing very visibly is probably like sown 30, 40, 50 years ago. And for us, when we're seeing the visible changes, it can be a shock. 
It can be, we can feel unsettled and disappointed and maybe even despair. And we feel, oh, we are losing our Christian heritage. We are losing our Christian heritage. Weeping. And we look back with nostalgia at when this was a Christian nation. I'm going to use some comments, uh, some brackets. And we think, oh, well, if only it was like back in 1940 when King George VI, he called the nation to prayer on the 26th of May, when Nazi Germany was threatening and coming across. We long for those days. But those were days when the culture was Christian because people were Christian. (laughs) And it shouldn't be a shock to us if the culture is different because people aren't Christian. In anything, it should be, we should be kind of grateful for anything that we do have, really, to be honest. The census says that the population isn't Christian, so why are we really surprised when people behave in a non-Christian way? Why is that a surprise to us? And perhaps it's a surprise because there's still a shadow of Christian influence, even if it's not quite recognized as such. Because we have this heritage, it's here, You walk around, physically you can see buildings. You can see physically a cathedral, which is a Christian church. That doesn't mean it's always going to be a cathedral. I've made this point before, but let me make it again. One of the greatest and the biggest physical churches of all of the world was the Hagia Sophia. And then in 1453, Fatih Sultan Mehmet comes into Istanbul and turns it into a mosque. And then Ataturk turns it into a museum. And then Erdogan turns it into a mosque again. And it is a mosque again. People go there and they worship, bowing down in Islamic practice. Now, we could despair and think, oh, that's impossible. But the thing is, God is not so invested in buildings as we might think he is. (laughs) He's willing to give them up. Because the reality of the matter is that Byzantine Empire was emptied of Christians long before, really, the Turks turned up. There weren't Christians there to fill that church. And therefore, if there aren't Christians to fill the church building, why are we surprised when they become apartments, when they become nightclubs, when they become whatever? And yet we still see, oh, what is that? What is that? Maybe they've taken the crosses down, they removed the stained glass. Something, there's a, there's a shape that's still there. You can see it, actually, from a Google map kind of perspective. Because the physical churches are made as crosses. You can't take away that shape. But we can still see influence in the laws of the land. There is this presumption that the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the, the alien, the stranger, they should be cared for and looked after. Where does that come from? Is that a Roman principle? Hang on a second, I don't think the Romans behaved that way. I don't think the Romans were so keen on the poor, the marginalized. They seem to be quite happy to leave babies outside and, and have them die. Is that something that you see in this society? No. Why don't you see it? It's because of a Christian heritage that we're still living in, living in that shadow of a Christian heritage. We still think, and I think I was uncertain about to put this one in, but let me, we still think, and I will add in just, that marital faithfulness is important and that it's wrong to have an affair. But this is also shifting because you see that an affair can almost be justified if it's for true love. And so by way of illustration, I don't think I'm too far off the mark. When Matt Hancock was caught having an affair on camera, the reaction was, oh, how bad that he broke lockdown rules. The first reaction was not, he's having an affair. He has betrayed his wife, who he promised to be faithful to until death. And therefore, that lack of faithfulness in a very personal way should therefore make us question what he can ever do in a public way. That logic has never joined, and yet it's still there, I think. No, no, no. Oh, that's a personal matter. He has an affair because it's true love. And true love is very important, and therefore, oh, but lockdown rules, he broke those. We're very angry about that. Did you see? So even that shadow of morality is also on its way out the window. 
But I do want to point out that other countries recognize this shadow of Christian influence, and they still come to us. Uh, part of my job is, uh, I won't say actually the rest of my job, but I am familiar with people that come to our country, Muslim people from Africa that come to England, who come away from a Muslim governments that persecute them, come by other Muslim countries, come by other Muslim countries and come all the way here because they value what is currently valued. They, they see that. They see something of, of importance. On Remembrance Sunday, by way of another illustration, what's the verse that we often hear quoted? Greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. Who said that? Jesus saying it about himself. And yet it's trotted out every year for Remembrance Sunday. When the king gives his speech to Parliament, he's going to finish by saying, I pray the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your council. That's, what, that's what's going to be said. <laughs> There's still this, this remnant here, this shadow, but the shadow is receding. Shadow is receding, which leaves us here, now, here's the issue, I think, that we've experienced. Once upon a time, imagine like a crowded room like this. I'm here, I can represent, actually, maybe we can have some illustrations. Uh, let's have Angus and Helen. You guys can come forward, come forward. Uh, I, I need to use you, you a little bit. In kind of a negative way, but, you know. So, um, I'll be the Christian uh, ethical position, okay? Sorry, you guys can just be the world. <laughs> Okay, you know, come in right in front of me, right in front of me. Okay, so here's it. Once upon a time, here we are all together. The Christians in society, they hold their values because their values are based upon Scripture. Everyone else in society, Angus and Helen representing us here, they're just going along with a the ride. They're, they're not really basing their morality upon Scripture or anything else like that. There's a heritage. They're here they are. They have it. And over time, excuse me, if you could go over here this way. If you can, yeah, go together, that's nice. They diverge. You can keep on going a little bit further. Okay. And now, what has happened? I haven't changed my values as a Christian. I'm still rooted upon the Bible. I'm still focused on here, yet society has moved over there. And once upon a time, I felt I felt fine. I felt with a lot of people together. In fact, the reality always was, I was always in a minority. I just never saw it very clearly. And now here is this space has been opened between us. And now I really feel alone. I feel in a minority, but I always was. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, I would give you a round of applause, but you just stood up. I mean, um, whoops, whoops. You still get a round of applause. That's nice. So the question then is, instinctively, we, we sense this gap. And we, let, we kind of feel, oh, I've only got two options. Option number one is, oops. To call over over these guys, hey, come back to your Christian past. And they're like, well, why would I? <laughs> come back and behave as a Christian. That's just an imposing of the law, isn't it? Why, does, why do we want anyone to behave as a Christian? We would want them to become Christians, and then they will behave differently. I don't want someone who isn't a Christian to start behaving as one. How is that ever going to work? It's not. So that's one time I can call them back. Behave as a Christian like you did back in the 1960s, back in the 90s. Remember how your grandparents lived. Remember, please, behave like that again. And there is another temptation that lies before us, which is what? We close that gap. We don't want to be isolated and alone. And I can go that way. I can close that gap by stepping away from my Christian principles, my foundations, and walking over towards them. And the gap is closed. And oh, it's not that harmful. It's not so big a problem, is it? Problem is, well, where are they going? And what is their, what are their foundations based upon? They are led by anything. And so if I start following after them, then that's not necessarily gonna do me very, uh, very many favors. Now, by way of illustration, I think this is, this is accurate. The Bishop of Oxford recently wrote a paper called Together in Love and Faith. And he is arguing in his paper that the Church of England needs to accept same-sex relationships, which it doesn't as at present. 
We'll see. In February, they have a conference. Maybe they'll change their minds. But within his argument, his argument really begins and ends with culture. He's really saying in his book, I'm paying attention to the prevailing culture. What is at stake is the ability of the church to speak to UK culture on a wide range of sexual issues, is what he's saying. Culture is his evidence. That's what he's standing on. He does make reference to scripture, but not much. And interestingly, he says this. Here's a quote. When he makes reference to Paul in Romans 1, he said, Paul is mirroring rather than challenging the Jewish understanding of same-sex relationships in his day, which also came to characterize the church and was in contrast with some of the prevailing morality in the culture of his day. Read that again if you want. Paul is mirroring the Jewish understanding of same-sex relationships in his day. Of course he was. (laughs) Of course he was, because he's a Jew. Paul is a Jew. He's drawing his perception on same-sex relationships from the Bible. He's reiterating it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, for the bishop of of Oxford, this is a terrible thing. (laughs) And he cannot understand what Paul is doing. Paul should be challenging No, Paul is being faithful to Scripture. But this, my friends, is kind of the the limit of the the argument of Scripture that is presented by the Bishop of Oxford. And I only put this out there just to make the point that really he's been driven by culture. His real imperative is to narrow that gap because he thinks that in the narrowing of the gap, by drawing close to people, then they'll hear him more readily on other issues. But I just don't think they will. I think if we narrow that gap, they'll just think, well, what's different? What is different? Why should I go to, you want me to come to church? Why? What is different in church from the pub? What is different in church from anywhere else? And I think the other thing that kind of lies behind this in part is that we are reluctant, and I do understand why, we're reluctant to face a confrontation and we're reluctant to face a bit of persecution. And again, I think this is an interesting Western perspective because we perceive that because we have this Western legacy behind us, persecution of any shape or kind is terribly wrong and out of place. How can we have persecution of Christians here in in a Western country? How can that be the case? And our brothers and sisters in Iran or in China or wherever else in Pakistan look upon us with slight disbelief thinking, what, what is this? Where are you drawing this from? Why do you have a presumption that you can't be persecuted for being a Christian? Where do you get that from? Because it is not in the Bible. The Bible is quite the reverse. If you want to live godly in Christ, you will be persecuted. Therefore, when we are not persecuted for following the Lord, that in itself is the unusual position to be in. Not the position of safety and harmony. That is a surprise, if you see what I mean. So we kind of go for the easy life. I I get it. I want an easy life as well. I want comfort. But I I recognize that that's what's trying to drive in my heart. So in all of this, we're kind of challenged, aren't we? We're challenged by questions. How can you believe in the Bible? Isn't it just an outdated book, a relic of the past? What authority does this book of 2,000 years, or what authority does it have in my life? And what's our response? Well, uh, in part, I'm kind of of the opinion, well, the Bible doesn't need defending, actually. Uh, Spurgeon says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. (laughs) All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Let the lion loose. So in one, I don't care really what the world thinks about the Bible. I just don't care. Before I was a Christian, uh, I didn't care about the Bible. I became a Christian and then I cared a lot. What I care about is how you as Christians perceive the Bible. That's really what I care about. Because my, my absolute concern is that you lose confidence in Scripture And when you lose confidence in Scripture, my worry is that you'll end up drifting 
and narrowing that gap, and you'll end up over there. And when you end up over there, I'm really worried about where you'll go next. Because you, you're, you're cutting yourself from, from the moorings. You are loose in the seas, wherever you'll go. Because Scripture 2 is, is like a compass. It gives us direction. Very clear. Remember this, this incident? Uh, I was on a, I think, adventure scout expedition in Wales. And suddenly we find ourselves in a whiteout situation. There's snow on the ground and there's a cloud in the air and you can't see. You can't distinguish the sky from the ground. Anything. And there's an expedition, probably about a dozen of us. How do you go forward? How do you take a bearing? And when you have a line of people lined up in order that you take your bearing, the person at the back from the, from a landmark, which is the person in the front, and then you can walk in a straight line. I'm not explaining this very well. My point is this. Without the Bible as a point of direction, we will end up lost. And nobody gets intentionally lost, do they? Uh, nobody, uh, I say that, there's some chuckling here. Uh, maybe there's something else I didn't know about. But no one gets intentionally lost. You just get lost. You get lost because you go out without a reference. You go out. And we live in a culture that has a myriad of distractions. A myriad of distractions. We, we are distracted constantly by, by Netflix, by social media, by many, many different things. Draw us away. And I would ask us the question, how much time do we actually spend reading scripture? I wonder if the previous generations, maybe they were a bit more solid because they weren't so distracted because they had that available time of reading the word. Now, maybe that helped them. It helped more them in a way that is challenging for us. So a couple of things to say about the Bible. Why does the Bible still have authority? Well, uh, oops, I just want to give you one. It declares itself as inspired by God. Now, you might say, well, hang on a second. How can it just say it's... But it does. So let's just stick with this for the moment. Paul writes, sorry, Peter writes, we know that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1, 16. And 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God, beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. Jesus says, scripture is unbreakable. Unbreakable. Now, the tricky thing is, uh, there you're like, well, isn't that quite circular? The Bible says it's inspired. Does that really mean it is inspired? Well, I could say to you, well, my, my letter, my journal, I could say to you, my journal is inspired. It is inspired by God. I can say that, and then you can read it, and you can come to me, and you can say, Stephen, that's nice, but it's not inspired by God. <laughs> you see, things are tested. And the Bible, whichever way you look at it, has been tested over thousands of years and has been accepted as what it says it is. So it says it's inspired by God. That isn't like an, an idol, like, just like my Starbucks is the best place in the world or something like that. It, it is tested, tried, proved, and it's still there. Who remembers, uh, well, by Starbucks coming to mind, Woolworths, anyone? Yeah, hands up, even cheers and delight. Where is Woolworths now? It's not there. You know, the Bible lasts longer than Woolworths. Let's put it as a... You know, something, think time tests things, and then that which remains, it remains. The Bible has been tested. Besides which, the church also declares it as the Word of God. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the, the Bible, as you know, 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New. It, it didn't kind of fall from the printers in the first century. Uh, it, it was written, it was, it was copied, there are manuscripts. And the church collectively, over a period of time, comes to a consensus. This, yes, this is the word of God. These, these people are inspired. They are inspired. It's bound to the first generation, the apostles who were with Jesus. Because they could, then we have a testing point there. It's a measure. But the church said, yes, this is the word of God. Now, people over time have questioned that a bit. Most famously, 
Martin Luther, uh, a bit provocative, ah, he doesn't like the Episcopal James, says it's an Episcopal straw. Does he throw it out of the Bible? No, he doesn't. <laughs> Still keeps it. Marcion was the last person that really tried to throw out the Bible. And uh, in, well, as he does so, as he says, oh, basically, the Old Testament, don't trust that. Half the New Testament, don't trust that. I'll keep a bit of Luke. At, at, at that point, the reaction of the church is, you are a heretic, let's kind of nail this down. So the church has accepted it, and we stand upon that legacy. Now, we, we might, I know we say, oh, we're, we're a charismatic church. We are independent of everything. We're not independent of everything. <laughs> we are resting upon a legacy. We are resting upon a 2,000-year legacy. And this Bible that I have happens to be in English is also resting upon a bunch of very clever people who happen to know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and have spent their lives translating it. And people like Tyndale that said, I'm going to translate the Bible into English, they gave their lives for it. So when I'm, I'm here and I've got my Bible that I can pick up from Amazon or wherever, well, it wasn't like that all the time. You know, People have sacrificed for this. I'm resting my life on them. Uh, and when I'm like, oh, these things I don't understand, I don't quite get this about uh, these beasts in Ezekiel, whatever, I can turn to commentaries and other people and I can look corporately. The church is there behind me. I'm with me. Does that make sense? It works. I thought, this isn't a great title, but I think it has to be said. The Bible just generally does work. Some of the metaphors that describe how God's word God's word works. Quite nice. A sword. The word of the God is sharper and active than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You ever open the Bible, you read it, and suddenly, oh my goodness, I have convicted. I'm convicted. I have sinned. I didn't realize I'd sinned before. Now I read the Bible and I realize I have. What has happened? It's this sword in my heart that's exposed things that I didn't know were there. It works. It's a mirror. Anyone here is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks in the mirror and then forgets, goes away. We look in the word and we see, oh yeah, I can see. Oh yeah, okay, I've got, you know, uh, I look in the mirror this morning, I, I shaved. I look in the mirror. What's the imperative then if looking in the mirror, if, the, if this is the Bible? You do it a lot, right? That not that the imperative? Constantly look in the mirror. Constantly. Do we read the word every day? Try to, aspirationally. But when we do, that's when the mirror is shining in our lives. Another one. I love this one. A fire and a hammer. Isn't my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters a rock? This is a bit more uh, forceful. <laughs> what was this idea of a hammer and a rock? Everyone smashed up something with a sledgehammer before. It is quite fun. Uh, but the, the metaphor here is our hearts are like the rock. And the word of God is like the hammer. Smash! Break us apart. Because we can get hard-hearted. We can get, and that's where we, we come. Without the word of God seeping in us, we become hard-hearted. So I think it does work. What's another one? Here's another issue. The ultimate issues in humanity haven't changed. You know, okay, times have gone on. I've got my smartphone or whatever. Uh, am I really so different from the people in the first century? Am I really so different? Here's an interesting quote. Children, they have bad manners. Contempt for authority, not mine, actually. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and tyrannize their teachers. Children are now tyrants. Oh, wow. When was that written? Socrates, 470 BC. <laughs> Times have changed. Not really. <laughs> Humanity doesn't change. The essence of us, of our hearts, of sin, doesn't change we still have the same problem that people had thousands of years ago. They were still struggling with jealousy, with pride, with vengeance, with betrayal, like we do today. Those elemental issues are still the same. 
And therefore, the ultimate salvation that humanity needs hasn't changed either. <laughs> it hasn't changed either. It's not like God is saying, oh, well, okay, church, now we're in the 21st century and you're a bit more modern with your technology. I'm going to introduce a new savior. Well, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, that was so old school. You need something new and fresh. Is that what we, is that our perception? It's not. The ultimate salvation still is the same. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, you think in them you have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me. All of scripture is bearing witness. It's looking at Christ. The old is a foreshadowing. And it may be a bit more murky for us, a bit more difficult for us to discern. That's the old, but it's still looking forward at a promise. The new explains that promise to us. It puts it front and center. Here is the promise. And then we get the detail. But that is all of scripture honing in on Christ. And therefore, I think this is the other thing. Oops, oops, okay. Yeah, here. The key issue. What's our response? What is our response when confronted by the word of God? Now, okay, yeah, we need to understand it. I've made that point. It's translated for us from, from Greek, from Hebrew, from Aramaic. It's translated into English. Fine. Uh, now I need to understand the meaning. Now I recognize that there is a, a bit of a gap potentially between me and people living in a different culture. Uh, if I'm reading Corinthians, I don't live in Greece. I live in Durham. There's a cultural gap there. I need to understand that to try and kind of wrestle with it. Uh, what about if I'm reading uh, the book of Revelation? Well, that's a different kind of genre. That's like more of a pictorial kind of language. It's talking ap- 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 apocalyptic kind of stuff. Different. What about if I'm reading the Psalms? Well, the Psalms, they're songs. Uh, what if I'm reading Proverbs? Well, that's kind of more wisdom stuff. I need to understand the genre. I need to grasp it, appreciate it. I need the context by way of illustration for context, if I said, I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, tears. Who says that? Winston Churchill. That's a bit of context. Does it make a difference to know that that was his first speech in Parliament, elected Prime Minister? Does it make a more of a difference for you to know that three days before that, Germany had invaded France? Does it make a difference from this side of history to know that he said that and still stayed as prime minister leading the country? Context is important. It does help us. It gives us meaning. It gives us depth. But when we get all of that, when we get our context, we get our understanding, we work out what scripture is saying, then we are left with this boiled down question. Do you obey? Do you obey? John thirteen seventeen. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. How does Jesus finish the Sermon on the Mount? He tells all these, all these ethical principles, how you live, how you live, how you live. And then he finishes by giving an illustration. He says, well, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, Maybe compared to a man who built his house upon a rock. And then it gives a contrast. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them. Maybe compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, what's the common denominator between these two things? In each one, they hear the word of God. That's the common point. One hears and one hears. And the difference, one hears and acts And the other one, one hears and does not act. So this is our kind of, this is boiling it down. Really the question, does the Bible still have authority? Well, the critical question is, do we allow it to have authority in our lives? When it challenges on on a certain point, will we then move into action? When the Bible says, like Louise preached last Sunday, if you were there, she preaches on the Great Commission. On the back of that, do we then try and witness to anyone in the week? Do we then go and try and talk to anyone in the week? Because we've heard a word that said, this is the Great Commission. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always. Well, that's what she said, speaking from Matthew 28. And what do we do? Do we act on it? Or maybe something else. When we read in the Bible, when Jesus says, when you give, don't give like the Pharisees. When you pray, pray by locking yourself in the room, in the private. When you fast, don't, don't let anyone know. The interesting thing about all of those principles, Jesus didn't say if. If you notice, it's when. When you fast, when you give, when you pray. When you read that kind of thing, you're confronted, you think, hang on a second. Mm, this is a bit awkward. I quite like my Sunday lunch. When you fast. And then we run into this other risk. Oh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take the sting out of this. Jesus clearly wasn't speaking literally. He must have been something else. It must have been, uh, I don't know, some kind of, some picture language. When you fast. He doesn't mean not eat food. Well, as a Jew, I think he probably does mean don't eat food. Because once a year, only once a year, enshrined in the calendar was one day of fasting. There were others bolted on throughout history. They would fast in mourning for the loss of Jerusalem and other reasons. But fundamentally, fasting was a thing in their culture. So when Jesus says, when you fast, don't be like X, he does mean don't eat food. Now, there are different reasons why we might want, not want to do that. But nevertheless, let's let that word stay there. And let's not just pretend it's not there. Let's not like excuse it and like, oh, it's not really in the Bible. Because we want to take all of Scripture together and not kind of pick and choose. When we pick and choose, we usually pick and choose the same things over and over again. At the neglect of the wider word. But all of Scripture is given for us to, uh, hang on a second, looking at that clock. Um, someone needs to give me a time signal. Uh, I think, is my time up? It is, isn't it? Okay, well, I'm going to finish. Let me just finish with one. Yeah, that's a good signal. Let me just uh, finish with this story. So, so once upon a time, there is a, a young man. And he's brought up in a town. This is in, in Asia. Uh, a place called Lystra. And uh, he is a Jew. And his mother brings him up in the, teaching the scriptures. And her name is Eunice. And he also has a grandmother, and she teaches as well, and her name is Lewis. And his dad is Greek, so he's getting a mix. He's getting a mix of culture, of Greek culture, and all that that contains, you can imagine. And he's getting Jewish culture. He's a man caught in the middle. Until one day, two strangers turn up at this town. And they start talking about Jesus and the resurrection and everything like that. And this man, he becomes a Christian with his family. His name is very well done. His name is Timothy. And he witnesses this man, the, the main speaker, he, Paul, he witnesses him being stoned. Presumably he thinks to death, but no. They take him, his body outside, he's raised up. But he witnesses this persecution. And then Paul comes back, appoints elders in that town, and goes away. Second missionary journey, Paul comes back. By this time, Timothy, this young man, is doing really well. He's going on with God. And everyone is commending him. And, and now Paul says, I want you to come with me. And then there's this, there's this confrontation, if you like. He says, you're, you're Jewish. You haven't been circumcised because of your Greek dad. And he obliges him to become, well, presumably Timothy isn't like saying, no, no, running for the hills. You know, he consents. But he consents to be circumcised. Falling under God's law. Falling under God, what God is asking him goes with Paul, travels with him, ends up in Ephesus. Ends up being left in Ephesus, and Paul goes off. And then at the end of Paul's life, Paul writes Timothy this letter. And this is where I will finish. This is 2 Timothy 3, uh, beginning in verse 10, and it goes on. Follow if you want to, but I'll, I'll read it to you. So Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, patience, Love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, where I was stoned. 
what persecutions I endured. And out of them, all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who want to live a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil people and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. Who did he learn them from? Paul. Continue in these things. Continue in this. And from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Sacred writings, that's the Old Testament he's referring to. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. And then, switching to chapter 4, I solemnly exhort you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, he's, you get the feeling, he's laying it on, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. And wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But as for you, you self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 2,000 years ago, very pertinent for today. This word that was given to Timothy is a word that is for us as well. Holy Spirit is speaking through this word to us, to us. The same temptations that were before Timothy, I presume, are before us. You can see in society we have that question. Do we narrow the gap because it's nice? Or do we allow that gap to remain and then to take the persecution that might come? Well, Paul already had that persecution. And he was a witness of, of that to Timothy. You've seen it. You've seen what I've endured. And yet, you've seen me be faithful. You be faithful too, Timothy. Persecution comes your way. It's okay. It's happened. Happened to the Lord Jesus. Might happen to you. But it's still worth it in the end. We're going we're gonna to break and have a coffee, but I'm going to pray. And then that will be the end of this session. And then we'll, we'll come back and have uh, Ina will speak to us and then have another time of worship. So, Lord, for this, this word that we've heard, that we just pray, sow it in our hearts. Lord, sow it in our hearts. Help us to uh, love your word. Because in it, Lord, are the words of eternal life. Uh, we, we really want to know you and we really want your grace to be obedient. Lord, uh, we are very weak uh, and, Lord, we're probably also very fearful. But, Lord Jesus, you have gone before us. You have shown us a way. Help us to be faithful and follow you.